Well, good evening. Great to see you all here. Make your way in if you hear me on the outside. We are just about to get started. My name is Manny. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to take a moment to welcome you to this evening with Dr. J.P. Moreland. Put your hands together, please. Thank you. And if you're watching online, go ahead and give me a virtual clap. There it goes, there it goes. Hey, I am so excited for you to hear Dr. J.P. Moreland this evening. I, came encountered with his, I became encountered with his writings about 20 years ago when I was cutting my teeth in ministry as a youth pastor here at Calvary Monterey. It was the first time that my pastor, Pastor Nate's dad, Pastor Bill, put one of his books in my hand, Love Your God With All Your Mind. It was such a pivotal book in my development. I was still a young pastor, a young ministry leader, and this book was just foundational in my development. The importance, one of the things it taught me was the importance of the mind in spiritual growth. I was challenged to begin to think biblically, to develop my intellect and my reason, and it, it taught me how to further God's kingdom with my mind through evangelism, apologetics, worship, and even my own profession. And so I'm so excited for you to hear his voice. This was my first time actually meeting him. And so this evening, as you walked in on your left-hand side, as you walk out, it'll be to your right. We have a book table with a couple of his books that will be for sale. They're $15 each. And when you entered, you should have been given a little card that has the phone number that you can begin texting in your questions. We will have a Q&A question, a Q&A question and answer period after uh, Dr. Moreland speaks where you can... Um, I'll be facilitating those questions for you, but if you can send them in via text, that would be awesome. The number is up there on the screen. At any time this evening, you can text in your question. In addition to that, you should have received one of these booklets. If you did not receive the booklet or the card, please go ahead and raise your hand, and someone will come down the aisle, come down the aisle and hand one to you. Dr. Moreland is a distinguished professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology. He has four degrees in the areas of theology, science, and philosophy, and he has co-authored, authored or co-authored 30 books. In my opinion, and I think many Christians would agree, he is one of the leading minds, thinkers, and voices of our time. Would you please do me a favor, put your hands together, and give a heartfelt Calvary Monterey welcome for Dr. Morning. Thank you. Thank you, Morning. Thank you. Well, I, I want to start by thanking uh, Pastor Manny, Pastor Nate, and Pastor Matthew, who's uh, sick with the flu. Uh, I think he actually got a copy of the notes ahead of time, and it made him sick. So, uh, but, but, you know, God bless him. But, uh, and uh, Pastor Heather and others who invited me, I have to say that my wife of 45 years, Hope, is here and it's a joy to have her with me. Uh, and uh, she and I, over the last several years, have come to, to love uh, Frank and, and Ray Darabont as, as family members. We've grown so close to them. And it was really Ray and Frank's initiative uh, to, to, do, to do this that got the idea before the pastoral staff. And they are... Uh, uh, taking care of us while we're here and overseeing our lodging and, and meals and so on. And so a real thanks to you, Ray. I know Frank is homesick. But I, they've told me so much about how much they love this church and, and, and the mind-boggling things that are happening here. And I am honored to, honored to be with you. And can I just say to you, please stay faithful and keep going. Don't turn back. Don't, don't let stuff get into your life that you're not willing to face. Deal with it. Because the, the stakes are really high, and we're in the midst of something that's happening in our culture that is no game. And uh, it's, it's, it's for the souls of men and women in this culture. And the only hope, in my opinion, is a revitalized, pure, faithful church that knows why it believes. And so we all have a long way to go, but let's commit ourselves together uh, to make progress, and I hope tonight we'll, 
bump you a little further down the road. Now, let me tell you how we're going to do this. I'm going to speak uh, at the beginning here. It'll be more a lecture than a sermon. And so you have notes in the little booklet that you were given. And my, my concern here is to clarify and clear up some notions about shame and guilt, forgiveness, what it is and what it isn't. And so, so this can be a more positive thing in your life. Uh, and then after that, we're going to have an hour of question and answer. Uh, you can leave whenever you want, but uh, I, this is, I, I hope that some of you who've come are atheists or agnostics or skeptics of some kind, or, or maybe seekers. You don't believe this stuff, but um, you're interested in pursuing it, and maybe you've got a question that's holding you back. Well, I, I want to try to help with those. If you're a believer, maybe there's something that still bugs you about Christianity, and you'd, you'd like to be able to ask it. Now, I can't guarantee that I can give you an answer to all these, but I'm willing to give it a shot. And if I don't know something, I'll make it up. So, I mean, you know, that's the way it goes. That's how I became a distinguished professor. <laughs> or as one of my colleagues called it, an extinguished professor. But in any case. So, so that time is not about the lecture. It's about any question you want to raise and, and, and clarify. Now let's open up your, uh, your notebooks or whatever you want to call them. You're going to be graded on this. And so you want to take notes because it will be on the test. Um, I want to talk about uh, getting rid of guilt and shameful feelings and learning to forgive. Now, this is a very touchy, difficult subject to talk about, to be honest. Because all of us have people that have hurt the heck out of us. Right now, there's somebody, in, probably somebody that you know, that if you had a chance, you'd slip their throat, or at least throw them in a river, uh, or, or maybe something lesser. But if, if we knew what was really in your heart, uh, you're, you, you, you're battling with them all the time in your head. And as I call it, you're giving them free rent. Uh, and they're controlling you because uh, they're in your mind all the time. And guess what? You win all the arguments with them, don't you? Isn't that amazing? When you're uh, arguing against somebody that's hurt you and you're re reasoning, you, I, at least I always win the ones that... that it's, it's funny, isn't it? But the problem is that you're actually being controlled by the person. And letting it go is hard, but it's essential if you want a vibrant Christian life. And learning how to do it is part of what we're going to talk about. So it's touchy to talk about this. You have done things to people that you can't forgive yourself. Uh, and you say, think, if, if other people knew about this, I'd really be embarrassed and ashamed. And so you, you beat up on yourself about it. And I think that all of this activity is the result of not understanding what forgiveness is, because there's a lot of confusion about it, uh, uh, even in the church. I mean, you see somebody on TV whose uh, son or, or her daughter, rather, it was raped or murdered, and they say, we have already forgiven th this person. And I say to myself, I don't, I don't think I could do that. I think I'd need time to do that. And I think that this is pretty quick. Not so sure this really, uh, there's really been a forgiveness here, but maybe the beginning of a process of forgiveness. But, so, so we need to get clear on this subject, and that's what we're going to do. So here's where I'm going. I'll begin by talking about the blessings of forgiving and receiving forgiveness. By the way, when I say the word forgiveness from now on, I'm going to mean it to mean both giving forgiveness and receiving forgiveness unless the context shows otherwise, because I don't want to keep repeating that. So uh, that's what forgiveness will mean, receiving it and giving it, either one. But, but So I'm going to talk about the benefits of that that accrue to us uh, it, it, with respect to a flourishing and growing life. After that, I want to talk a little bit about the role that shame, feelings of shame and guilt uh, should play in the Christian life and try to clarify what that role is. After that, I want to talk about what forgiveness is and what it's not, so we can be very, very clear 
about what it means to forgive someone else or to forgive yourself, which is a huge problem. After that, uh, I'm going to talk about how practically do you become a forgiving kind of person who is, has the tendency to forgive as their initial reaction to being harmed, rather than, in a postmodern culture, the, the, the highest virtue is a tendency to take offense. Uh, and so we're taught that we should be, uh, take offense at all kinds of things. That does nothing but divide people, and it causes a slow deterioration and deadening of the person's soul. And we want, it, we want live souls filled with joy and goodness. But that doesn't come uh, easily. You have to, with the Spirit's help, work on it. And one of the things you have to learn to do is how to practice things that will make me grow toward being a forgiving kind of person it, without thinking about it. That's the natural, habituated reaction that I will express, and we want to learn how to grow that way. Next, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, should, we, should we judge other people? Uh, that's a controversial question that, that I think there's some confusion about, and then I'll close uh, uh, with um, just some miscellaneous things I want to add. If we have a little bit of time, maybe I'll tell you some fun things about me, uh, about my childhood, and about... I was a star in high school, football, basketball, and I'd love to talk about some of that stuff. So, so maybe, I'll, maybe I'll do a little bit of that if we have time. <laughs> Please don't leave during that time. It's very important, okay? Okay, yeah, let's, let's get going here. And uh, let's take a look at the benefits of giving and receiving forgiveness when it's properly understood. Spiritual benefits. You have peace with God and an increased experience of his love and kindness. It helps to remove your guilt and shame. And this is important. It gives you the power to seek God because when you feel unforgiven or you haven't forgiven somebody, it weakens your armor and it weakens your ability to have the motivation to seek God. And that's one of the reasons why we become lukewarm and lazy in our faith is because of a lack of being or, or giving forgiveness. And so forgiveness helps with that, and it gives people courage to stand for the kingdom. Can I, can I speak frank with you? We're, the evangelical community today is largely filled with cowards. I, I'm sorry, and I don't mean to be mean-spirited. Uh, and, I, you know, if it doesn't apply to you, that's great. But, but basically, we're, we're cowards. We're afraid to talk about what we believe. We're afraid to stand up and say we think that homosexuality is wrong or some other moral issue if it's relevant. And there, you can do that in a loving way and this, that, and the other, but we are basically afraid. And I think that we need Christians who are courageous without being argumentative or defensive, who can be kind and gracious but courageous and just stand. Stand. You can't be moved. And if, I st if I'm standing the day I die, I will have been grateful for the life I lived. I just want to be able to stand. And that's what's wrapped up in this whole issue about forgiveness. So uh, the relational benefits. Harmony in your marriage or friendship relations replaces anger. Contempt, which is the number one sign that you're headed toward divorce. Uh, and discord. Uh, relational benefit also is the removal of disruptive behavior of attack and withholding. These are the two methods that we try to control our spouses or close friends. We either aggressively attack them or we withdraw and we withhold affection or conversation. We don't talk to them. And those are the ways we basically try to retain a sense of control and safety for ourselves. We either get strong and attack the person, or we withdraw and withhold what is rightfully theirs, like being able to have a conversation with you or what have you. And those are, they're dangerous, but, but uh, for, when you forgive 
it removes the tendency to do these forms of self-protection. Um, you achieve a reputation of being a safe, open, and accepting person. Boy, does that sound good. You know, people say, you know, you, that so-and-so is really safe. You can say anything you need to say to them, and they're, and they're, gonna be, they're not going to spread it. They're, they're open to hearing what, what's bothering you, even if it's heretical or whatever it is. And they're, they're accepting. That doesn't mean they'll agree with you, what, what you're doing, but they will love you in, in the process. And for learning to be a forgiving person achieves that. Now, moral benefits, it's usually the right thing to do. There's some there's exceptions, but they're rare where forgiving can be harmful. So we'll, we can talk about that later, but let's just say for the most part, it's the right thing to do. Uh, it avoids hypocrisy. Uh, when I do something wrong, I want others to forgive me. I mean, gosh, I want them to let me off the hook or forgive me. Uh, I don't want them to continue beating me up for something that I did. Well, if I want it, I mean, do you want people to forgive you? Well, okay, praise the Lord. Um, well, so do I. And uh, so if I want that, don't you think it would be consistent for me to try to give it to other people? It seems a little bit hypocritical for me to want it but not give it. And so by forgiving, I avoid that kind of hypocrisy. Um, physical benefits, oh my gosh. Uh, it lowers blood pressure, uh, whatever. Uh, chances of cancer and heart disease, agitated nervous system disorders. It strengthens your immune system and your general health. And I could go on, but there are all kinds of physical uh, benefit. It, it lowers your chances of getting cancer. And, and, and incredible. Anyway, there are physical benefits. Finally, psychological benefits. It allows me to be kind and nurturing to myself. And, the, and the, we all need to learn how to nurture ourselves and, and be, be kind to ourselves. Little tip, if you want to learn how to, to be uh, gentle towards something, you need to learn to see it in two ways. This is a freebie I'm adding. Um, if you want to be gentle towards something, you need to be able to see it in two ways. Number one is precious, and number two is vulnerable. So we're, we take a little puppy, a little dog, we, we want to try to be gentle with the little thing because we see the little guy's precious. But we also see him or her as vulnerable, and that brings out affections of gentleness towards us. If you want to be gentle with yourself, instead of beating yourself up all the time, you have to learn to see yourself as a really, really precious person. And we'll talk about later, but God really likes to think about you. He likes you. He thinks about you, and he likes it. So you're precious, but you're also vulnerable. Are we, are we all broken and vulnerable people? Is there anybody in here who doesn't see that? Sir, please, put your hand down. Uh, no. No, we all, we all know that we're broken, and, uh, and, and, and so be kind to yourself and learn how to nurture yourself, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Now, let me give you a, a, a reflection here um, in addition to the uh, uh, psychological benefits. Uh, number, I want to read number seven. I know I'm jumping over a point, but if, look, think about this. If Christianity is true for the sake of argument, let's assume for the sake of argument Christianity is true. If it's true, then, then one would predict and this is kind of like scientific methodology, you would predict to make certain discoveries in psychology and in medicine. And those discoveries would be that the teachings of Christianity about wisdom and spiritual, physical, psychological practices and attitudes would be good for us, wouldn't you think? If Christianity was true, you would think that the teachings about how to live and, and so on that are in, this, in the scriptures would be good for us. Well, guess what they've discovered? They're all good for us. 
Scientists have find, they, they came out with this incredible discovery uh, uh, a few years back. Gratitude is really good for people, and it helps you get rid of depression and anxiety. And it's even more important than having hope in life, is learning to practice the art of giving gratitude. I wrote a book on uh, dealing with depression and anxiety, and I gave four solutions to that. One of them is learning how to practice gratitude. Well, duh, the Apostle Paul said that 2,000 years ago, and we've been waiting for these knuckleheads to catch up. So finally, scientists have discovered it. And the same thing about, about serving other people instead of being self-focused. Forgiveness and a litany of things that psychologists are starting to say, oh my gosh, this is good for you, and the Bible said it a long time ago, and so we're just kind of waiting for, for people to discover what we already knew was true, doggone it. And so that gives evidence that Christianity is true. Do you understand? If you have a hypothesis that predicts certain things, and you discover that they in fact obtain, that lends some confirmation to your hypothesis. And this gives evidence that the Christian religion is actually a true description of how we really function. Now, I'm starting to preach, and I'm going to quit, because my blood pressure is increasing. <laughs> so isn't that cool? So the benefits of forgiveness are over the charts, ladies and gentlemen. They're so, that makes this an important issue. This is not one of those, not, oh, it's such a nice little Christian idea. Let's, let's make a song out of it and, and sing about it. And it's just so sweet. Uh, no, Christianity is not sweet. It is countercultural and it's revolutionary. And this forgiveness business is right at the bottom of it. And so let's ask ourselves the question what is the role that guilt and shame play in the Christian life? And I make a distinction between what I call false subjective guilt and shame and objective guilt and shame. What is that? Well, false subjective guilt and shame is having inappropriate guilt and shaming feelings and attitudes towards oneself when you, don't, when you haven't done anything wrong. It's, it's when parental tapes play and you were told not good enough. You're just not good enough. Nothing you do, you can never get your dad to say, you did a great job. You, you know, he always says, you know, you could have done better on that. And so you grow up with the message, as a friend of mine told me, that he's not good enough. And so he's constantly feeling feelings of guilt and shame when he shouldn't, because he hasn't done anything wrong. On the other hand, uh, objective guilt and shame is genuinely doing something wrong and shameful. One can have objective guilt and shame without subjective guilt and shame, and the other way around, meaning that you can feel guilty and shameful when you really haven't done anything wrong. So your conscience is distorted by factors that have made you be hypersensitive to things. Am I, am I right about this or am I right? Okay, I, sit, that's, I give my students those same alternatives. And it turns out that I'm right. So that, don't you love that? That's, it's, I still have a salary. All right. Um, and, and, and you can actually do something that's, that's guilty, that is guilt, absolutely guilty-producing and wrong and shameful, but not feel it because you're out of touch with your feelings or you're unaware of, uh, of you know, that this bothered somebody, okay? So what that means is that your feelings of guilt and shame are not always good indications as to whether you really have done something wrong. They're, they're a real mixed bag. Now, the fundamental problem causing a lack of, of self-forgiveness is being hard on oneself. It is life, it is being prideful. A prideful character puts one in a position of lacking the ability, look at this, to have pity on oneself. Now look at the top of the first page, please, where I quote Dallas Willard. Are you ready? People who are merciless 
and unable to pity others and receive pity simply have a hard life full of unresolvable problems. And the word pity is crucial because our, you don't find that word in our culture anymore. And that's a, that is a sign of the moral corruption of society that we have lost words like pity. And um, charity used to be uh, taking pity on someone and giving them something to help. But where you were recognizing that they were in need. But now, you know, that's not, that, you're not supposed to do that. That's looking down on the poor. And it's not politically correct. Uh, you know, people don't say, when you say thank you, people don't say, uh, you're welcome. Instead, they say, hey, no problem. Well, heck, if it was no problem, why am I thanking you for it? I mean, give me a break. You don't thank people for something that wasn't a problem. When you thank somebody, they're in a position of, of having been a servant to you. Do you understand that? And so that lowers them below you in people's minds because they were the servant. And it's not good to be a servant. That's not Christianity's view. So instead of saying, you're welcome, they say, it's no problem. Nobody does that intentionally. These linguistic shifts creep into a culture slowly as moral attitudes change and words get reinterpreted to express new views, some of them get abandoned altogether. The word pity is to take a merciful, pitiful, understanding the sad state of another and consequently taking pity on them. And as a result, being prideful puts you in a, gives you a prideful character which puts you in a position of not being able to have pity on yourself. Such pity is a prerequisite for forgiving. You can't pity someone, someone you can't forgive someone if you don't pity them. Now let me, let me give you what I mean by that. One of the ways that we learn to forgive people is that we recognize our common humanity with that person and how absolutely messed up we all are. That in our fallen human nature, we're just broken. And I'm sorry if you're an atheist here. I'm just, this is a conversation with Christians. You're welcome to listen in. If you want to ask me about it later, you can do what you want if you do it courteously. But this whole thing about of forgiveness requires that we realize our own brokenness. Think about forgiving yourself for something you did. You have to start by saying, I'm messed up. I'm just, I'm fallen. I'm not, none of us is what God wants us to be, and neither are the other people that hurt me. And so, you know what? We're in a pitiful situation. And that's, by the way, why we need Jesus in the scriptures and fellowships like this, because we're all messed up and we're pitiful. Now, we can grow, thank God, but I'm simply trying to say that we have to recognize the pitiful state we're all in. We're not anywhere close to what God wanted us to be. Now, that don't get guilty about that, but that should move us to take pity on ourselves, and that means that we would, be, we would nurture ourselves because we're vulnerable and we're precious. Are you seeing the connection there? So to take pity is a, is a prerequisite for then extending forgiveness because you are aware of someone's complete fallenness and maybe bad circumstances. Now, um, there are two scriptures that are, that are absolutely foundational to this whole enterprise. And if I could suggest this, Either memorize these or put them on a 3 by 5 card and put them on the fridge or your dashboard next to your, you know, Jesus thing, that the bobblehead Jesus. Put, put, put this next to him on your dashboard. And uh, these verses 
are absolutely revolutionary if you come to actually believe them. And look, the first one says, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Now, you know about Colossians 2, 13 to 14. You know that when people were crucified in those days, the, the, the crimes for which they were crucified was often put above their heads and nailed on their cross. And if people drove came by, and the crosses were actually about eye level. They weren't as high like we see them in the movies because it allowed people to have the ability to spit in your face if you were being crucified or to come along and get in your face and mock and, and derange you. And that's why you're, what you did wrong is right there above your head so people can know why Rome decided to, to take your life, and they, they can detest you and can jump on board. Do you, under, do you understand it? So the purpose of crucifixion was more than just taking the life of a person guilty of something, but it was to send a message about what happens to people that are shameful like this. Okay? Well, in light of that, Paul says in Colossians, and when you were dead in your wrongdoings and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is, you did not have a new nature, you, were, you had a fallen nature, and that's all you had. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our wrongdoings. Now, having canceled the certificate of death, of death that consisted of decrees against us, which was nailed on our cross above our heads, which were hostile to us. And he has taken that out of the way, having nailed it to Jesus' cross. Do you understand? Dennis, well, I love Dennis Prager, but Dennis Prager says, how in the world can a person uh, be like Adolf Hitler and live his whole life and, and then, you know, on his deathbed, he, he cries out to Jesus and asks for forgiveness. How in the world can, how is that moral? He's getting, he's getting away with a life of unbelievable evil. Uh, well, what Dennis doesn't understand, I love Dennis Prager, but what he doesn't get is the incredible magnitude and gravitas of the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God because all the things that Hitler or whoever makes a deathbed conversion, who means it, now that's obvious, those were the things they did did not go unpunished. They did not. They were nailed to the cross, and Jesus suffered them, so it's not like they got away with it. There was a substitute that paid for those things, all of them. And that's why it's not immoral for that to be true, because the presupposition that underlies the immorality claim of that, a deathbed conversion, assumes that in deathbed conversions, nothing was done about all the wrong they did. But there was something that was done about all the wrong they did, and it was, thank God, a substitute that was willing to experience and take on the things I did wrong and pay it for me. That's, that, I just want to get clear on that because that's an objection often raised against the idea of substitutionary atonement of Jesus dying on the cross for other people. So now, these, these two verses have got to be in your mind. And I say, uh, uh, based on these verses, Jesus' followers should no longer experience feelings of guilt and shame. Now, let me say that again. What role do feelings of guilt and shame play in the Christian life? Zero. They play no role at all. Anytime you're feeling guilt or shame about something, that you're, you're out of bounds and you've got to retrain yourself to stop feeling that way. Now, I know you're looking at me and thinking his great learning has driven him mad. Well, I'm going to tell you what you should feel. But the reason I say that you should not have those feelings is because of the two verses I just mentioned. They're either true, in which case I'm never to feel the weight of guilt and shame 
for myself because someone else did it for me. All right? Here is what I should feel instead. Instead, Christians should feel godly sorrow. Let me tell you the difference. Godly sorrow is a sense of sadness for what one has done or for one's lack of character growth in some area. You're sad that, doggone it, I just, I'm, still, I'm still not a really warm, kind person. At least like I should be at this point. Or I, I did such and such that wasn't right. And you don't feel shame and guilt. You feel godly sorrow. Well, what's the difference? Godly sorrow is optimistic and positive in that it prompts one to take pity on oneself as a fallen, broken person. Man, no one, I mean, there I am. I, I am a pitiful being, and I'm really sorry that I'm fallen. And then you acknowledge your wrongdoing or character shortcomings, and you resolve with God's help to grow in this area. This draws you to God. It doesn't make you want to hide from Him. So godly sorrow is a recognition of, of your pitiful state, what you've done, a recognition that that guilt and shame is no longer something I should feel emotionally because that was taken care of by my substitute. But what I should feel instead is a sense of sorrow uh, that I'm not what I would like to be at this stage or sorrow for what, what happened which draws me toward, it's hopeful. It has a sense of recognition and taking pity on myself for the sad person I am. And I'm drawn toward God, not because I, I want him to hold me. I just need him to hold on to me for a little bit. And I, uh, and I want a hug from the Lord Jesus or, you know, whatever it might be in your case. So, the, so and this is amazing. Um, by con contrast, retaining subjective guilt and shame causes one to carry experiences of condemnation, you beat up on yourself, prideful self-sufficiency, and self-preoccupation. When you do something wrong and you feel shame and guilt, you think about it all the time. It occupies your mind, and you, you can't break away from it and think about what you ought to be doing and getting on with your life because you carry this, and it's self-condemnatory, feelings toward yourself, and they do you no good, and it, it takes you out for the, your, the purposes of God's plan for your life. It's just like a, a shooting your legs out from underneath you. And don't do that. we got to learn to practice not doing that. When we start going towards shame and guilt, stop. Say, wait a minute, no, no. I actually believe you say to yourself, Romans 8.1 and Colossians 2. I actually believe that. So uh, my guilt and shame have already been experienced and taken care of. But I am sad. I just am sad because I'm, I'm such a broken person and I'm so needy. And that makes me just want to run to Jesus. I don't need to clean myself up first. I'm just coming the way I am. And uh, I will talk about confession of sin later. So... so uh, this, this feelings of guilt and shame also foster habits of earning restoration with God by asking for his acceptance only after one has punished oneself enough to approach the mercy of God. So that's why we confess over and over and over again because we don't feel forgiven yet. And we confess until we finally have that sense that I've been forgiven and what's really going on under that is I'm beating myself up until I feel like I flagellated myself enough to where I'm probably, it's okay for me to come in God's presence. And I don't mean, to, I mean, I've been guilty. That's sick. I'm, I'm sick like you're sick. I mean, so I'm not blaming you for being sick. I'm accusing all of us of being sick. But do you see what, how sick that is? And so if you're in the habit of constantly confessing, you're, you're carrying guilt and feelings of guilt and shame that you shouldn't be carrying. Instead, you ought to be focusing your attention on the sadness that you're experiencing about what you did. It just makes you sad or, or your lack of character growth. And that makes you want to run to God and to have him just love you for, for who you are in the midst before you even confess. 
just the way you are right there and let him love you. And it's restorative where guilt and feelings of guilt and shame are destructive. Godly sorrow is restorative. It brings me hope. It reconnects me with God rather than making me want to hide from him. All right. Now, having said that, um, we, we conclude then that, that's, that godly sorrow and sadness are huge, but felt feelings of guilt and shame should not be a part of our lives because they've been dealt with at the cross. Doesn't mean we don't feel anything, but we don't feel that. We feel godly sorrow. Now, what about forgiveness? Well, let's talk about what it is and what it isn't. Forgiveness is not forgetting and reconciling. To forgive somebody doesn't mean you forget what happened, and it sure as heck doesn't mean you reconcile yourself with the individual. There are some people that if you reconcile, you're going to get hurt again because they're predators, and they have predatory personalities, and you need to stay away from people like that. I had a guy in my life that was like that, and he was eating into me and spreading gossip and lies about me, and Dallas Willard knew this guy, and he knew me, and he said, stay away from him, J.P., Stay away from him. He's toxic, and when you're around him, he'll do nothing but attack you in a manipulative way. Just, just don't, don't be around him, and if you pass him in the hallway, you don't need to be, be mean-spirited, but treat him like a 7-Eleven man. You know, just do your business with him and, and move on. Don't get hooked into it. So what I'm trying to suggest is that it is not reconciling. That's different. Forgiving somebody is not... It's not forgetting and it's not reconciling. It's not letting somebody off the hook by trying to keep them from suffering the natural consequences of their acts or releasing them from the just punishment they deserve by the state. You can forgive someone personally but believe that they should be executed in capital punishment because they need to pay for, for what they did. And the state has an obligation to do that. That's not inconsistent. It doesn't mean that you, you give them approval or you excuse what they did or you justify it or pardon them, which means releasing them from the consequences of, of what the person did. People should experience the natural consequences of their actions. Those are instructive. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't mean refusing to take the wrong seriously and attempting to minimize or rationalize it. Well, you know, he had a tough day, and it was, you know, it's just a bad day for that, my friend, you know. Well, that's rationalizing their behavior. So now what is forgiveness? It would be, be important to keep these notes and go back over these. I'm going a little quick, but I, I want to get this before you. It, to forgive someone is to have mercy for and to take pity on them as the basis of choosing not to make that person suffer for what he or she did. You release and abandon the person to God. We release our bitterness and our desire for revenge. It is canceling a debt owed to you, wiping the slate clean. Now, let's be clear about this. This doesn't mean that you do not believe that they should be punished for what they did uh, by the state. It means that you are not going to carry uh, anger or a grudge or be arguing with them in your mind or, or any of that. You're going to let go of them and release them to God to deal with them uh, as, as he sees fit. It doesn't mean that they should not uh, compensate for what they've done wrong in, in the relevant kind of way. What it does mean is that you don't need to make that happen for you to feel okay. So you're going to release them yourself from you needing to make sure that they're, they're punished or exposed. Um, so it's, that's what that number one means. It's not keeping a track record in your mind of what they did. Um, now... <clears throat> Remember I said forgiveness is not forgetting. I'm not, and it's hard to forget. So you can forgive without forgetting. But not keeping a track record means that you're not adding up in your mind, he did that to me, he did that, he did that, he did that. 
And you're keeping a score on how many times and how bad this person's been to you. That's different. When you do that, you're preoccupied with this person's wrongdoing toward you rather than getting on with your life. Now, my view is that we all need a small group of friends where we can process and complain about a person who has been, who has been uh, abusive to me and done things wrong to me. Uh, and because I need to get rid of those feelings. And in addition to God, it's helpful to process it with a small group of very close friends who will keep confidence. That keeps me from gossiping because I need to release this. But if I don't have a small group of people I can talk with, then I'll start, I leak, we all leak. I'll start leaking over everybody, and pretty soon I will have spread this stuff about this person that is not my job to expose. So uh, when you process and you complain about it with a small group of friends, they can tell you that you're now getting to the point where you're now over the line, and you're starting to really badmouth and gossip rather than just trying to get this off your chest so you can heal and release them. Do you understand the difference? So I believe in that, but I don't think you should keep a track record and add up score and all that stuff. It's not seeking to make the person afraid of me or intimidated by me, though appropriate self-protection may be necessary. You may need to stay away from the person or protect yourself from them. And there are people in this room dealing with those kind of situations with people that have hurt you and have a reputation for being toxic, and you're feeling like you need to meet with them or something. And my view is you don't cast pearl before swine. And what Jesus meant by that was you don't give something that is wonderful, like a pearl, to a being that can't digest it. So it basically means don't tell people the truth or good, or good things if they can't hear it. It does, it does no good and hardens their heart. That's why he taught in parables, to sneak the stuff by their defenses. Okay? But so, so don't, you don't need to do those sorts of things. Uh, uh, you don't want, want to feel like you've got to meet with them and t tell them again what they did wrong uh, if you don't think they're able to handle it. They, if it's just going to turn into an argument and reinforce their view that you're a loser and they're not going to receive it, why t it's just a pointless to tell them. You under am I, are you following me on that? Okay, all right. Um, now, uh, forgiveness uh, is, uh, forgiving in, means forgiving God for letting this happen to you. That may sound funny. Uh, it is a bit funny, but sometimes we carry a grudge against God for why did you let this happen to me? Sometimes we need to say, Lord, I want to release you. I, wanna, I, I want you to know that I don't hold a grudge against you anymore. And, and you, know, we're, you know, we're insane because God doesn't need to be forgiven, but we still feel like he's culpable. So what we need to do is to tell him, I've been thinking you're culpable, and, I, and why in the heck did you not jump in and help? And I, I want to, you know, know I'm releasing you. My, I want to change my attitude on that. Okay. Now, it also involves cultivating a dispositional readiness to forgive. This means to be to, to do practices that help you become a forgiving sort of person. Now, let's look at how you do that. Here are some ways as to how you can become a forgiving kind of individual. The first is you've got to remember that God loves to forgive. He absolutely enjoys it. He loves doing it. This is not something he begrudges. He likes it. I mean, just think of your favorite activity. You know, going to Hawaii, a certain food, and you just love it. That's what God feels about forgiving people. He loves doing it. It's in his nature to take delight in it. Well, I mean, if he takes delight in forgiving me, oh my gosh, if I really, if I get a hold of that, then I'm going to learn to, to receive his forgiveness that he's given me, not grudging, he didn't do it grudgingly, here you are again. Uh, uh, it, he takes delight in it, especially with his dear children. And so we want to learn to try to imitate God and practice being like him in that regard. To uh, learn to take pity on others and oneself is fundamental. This is achieved. How do I learn to take pity on other people or me? This is achieved by recognizing that it's broken, 
disastrous state of our shared humanity, asking yourself what you would like others to do to you, okay, and then do it to them. <laughs> um, treating others and yourself like you hope and envision a close friend or dear loved one would treat you. You hope that if you told a dear loved one something that you did wrong, they wouldn't beat the heck out of you. They, they would say, well, you need to make it right or something, but they would be loving and helpful and kind. You want to be that way. It is important to remember that God has forgiven me when I didn't deserve it, and I want to do the same to, uh, to uh, want to do the same, other to do the same for me. D, picture the person as a little child being mistreated. This is so helpful. This guy that was attacking me, a colleague at, at the university, I tried to picture him as a little two-year-old or three-year-old in a home that was dysfunctional. I didn't know if it was or not. But I pictured him growing up and all the hardships that he must have had. And I began to actually feel pity for him because I imagined him as a baby or a young child uh, and, and, and things happening to him that, that, you know, kids tease him on the playground or what have you that would bring him to this point. And that kind of imaginary thinking helps you. And you may be wrong about the specifics, but we've all had those. And it's, it's an attempt to try to put yourself in, in their shoes when they were more tender and vulnerable in younger age and empathize with them. You might not be able to empathize with a person who's down in the office from you because they're an adult, but maybe when they were like four or five, it's easier to empathize, and that's what this helps you do. Um, picture the person, uh, picture Jesus holding your offender as a child close to, to his chest in a loving, protective embrace. Imagine what you would be like if you had grown up under the horrible circumstances that he or she grew up under. And then finally, do a benefits burdens analysis uh, on working through forgiveness versus holding on to forgiveness. Is it really worth it? Uh, usually it is not. Now, let, let me move on. And uh, I, I want to, there's something else that we'll talk about. But should we judge other people? Uh, can I just say, I'm so tired of Christians saying, well, it's, it's not me to judge. And that's baloney. It, it just, it, we're, we're supposed to judge. And so, please, I mean, be, be, be nice to this old guy, you know. I'm getting crotchety in my old age, and the Chiefs lost today, and I'm in a bad mood. But, but look, would you, don't do this thing where we're not supposed to judge people. Be more thoughtful about it. Now, here's what, here's what Jesus taught. Don't judge that you should not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now, there he says, don't judge. But now he says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? He doesn't say you shouldn't be looking at the speck in the other person's eye. He says, you start with you, and then you move out. You know what I'm saying? Okay, you hypocrite, he says. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, that means you've got to judge that the brother has a speck in his eye. That's judging. So, Galatians, brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual are to restore to such a person in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so you won't be tempted in the same thing that that person did. So here's how to reconcile all this. Judging is condemning or having contempt for or exalting myself over another person? No. We're not to judge people in, this, in, the, in the sense of elevating ourselves over them or in uh, having contempt or, con or condemning them as being worthless or anything like that. That's not our job. But judging is evaluating, assessing their behavior or discerning and admonishing them to repent from something. That is the kind of judging we are to be doing with society and with each other. That means that we need to be assessing our brothers and sisters and if we find something that, that, that they need to correct, 
then, then we need to say, you got you know, I'm sorry, but there's a speck here, and I'd love to help you if, if I could. Um, work, work through that if I could be of help. You might want to start doing that with your closer Christian friends, but the, but the point is that we are to judge if we're going to evaluate bad things from good things. And we're to be constantly evaluating our, the people around us, our culture. So we don't do it to judge or condemn, but we do do it to assess. So we can have an accurate assessment of certain things and, and not fuzzy assessments of it. Okay, in, in Roman numeral 4 here, I've just added another text for you to put on a 3 by 5 card if you want to. I won't read that to you. Um, but these texts might be helpful. Let me move on to Roman numeral 7. Then I want to summarize and make one point, And then we'll move to our uh, Q&A time. Roman numeral 7, addendum. I'm assuming now that Romans 8, 1 and Colossians 2 are true. That we really are... There's no condemnation any longer, that we're actually forgiven. All right, on that assumption, what are we to make of 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we're already forgiven by accepting the gospel, why should we confess our sins again as recommended by this verse? Our pardon was granted when we embraced the gospel. Acts of practicing 1 John 1.9 do not re-grant a pardon we already have. Rather, like the regular celebration of the Lord's table, such acts are reminders of our need for the forgiveness God has given me. I remind myself of, of a need, what needy, broken person I am, and I experience the godly sorrow that comes from that. And I acknowledge that to God. God, I am, I am at such need of the, of the gospel uh, because I'm broken and I'm not what you want me to be. And I, I'm sorry. I'm sad about that. Okay. And they are occasions, doing 1 John 1, 9, of experiencing cleansing and release. So you're not asking for a, a brand new forgiveness but what you are doing is it's an occasion where you are acknowledging that you did something wrong and you're broken and, and, and asking God to be pitiful to me in my human condition because I'm pitiful and, and need mercy. And I'm going I'm to move on with godly sorrow. That's the difference. Now, I want to say one other, th one other thing that I, that I omitted. Forgiveness is both... A, a decision and a process, okay? And I forgot to mention this. You have to decide, at some point, if you're forgiving yourself or somebody else, you have to decide, and you say to yourself, I'm really hacked off at this person. And I don't want to, I mean, right now, I hope a lot of bad things happen to him, to be honest with you. And uh, the guy's a jerk, and he deserves everything he gets. Uh, and that's where I'm at, but... I, right now, with as much sincerity as I can muster, and which isn't a lot, but whatever sincerity I got, I want to forgive so-and-so for what he did to me. And be sure you read what that means and doesn't mean. And so then what happens is you have begun the race. There's a beginning to a race, and then there's the running of the race, right? You can't run the race without starting. Well, in forgiveness, there's a beginning to forgiveness, and there's a process of learning to grow in that forgiveness that may take six months to four years, depending on how much you're able to release that person. But you have to start somewhere. And so you start, even if you don't feel like starting, and you feel like a hypocrite, and you just acknowledge it. Lord, I don't, uh, you know, anyway, but, but I'm going to ask you, Right now, to take whatever I, sincerity I've got in my heart, and I'm going to let go. I'm going to forgive this person. I don't want to carry him around all the time. And I, you know, will you begin a process of releasing? And a person will come to your mind, and you'll re-release them. And you'll let them go afresh. Does it make sense? So it's then a process of forgiving. It's not an instantaneous act. It's got a beginning, but then it's a process. There are times for exposing people. 
and what they did. Especially if what they did is hurting other people. But you have to be careful about doing that because sometimes exposing a person is, is, is casting pearl before swine in the sense that that person and those that are around them are so hardened about this person being wrong about anything that nobody will listen to you. And at that point, it's smarter to not get enmeshed in the situation because it's not going to do any good to expose them. I hope this has been helpful. Um, you're looking at me like I'm from Mars. And uh, it's going to get worse during the Q&A, so thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Manny.